Well, um, you know, there's something in this, some things in this life that are appropriate to do, and some things in this life that are not appropriate to do. Um, I remember when I was small, when, when our, our family were small, our children were small. Uh, we had five children, and uh, they were small. And we had a way in which we were trying to teach them manners. And I didn't talk to Yvonne about this specifically because it may have been vetoed a little bit. But I, I want to tell you this little game that we played at the Brandon household. And uh, David, what's the name of this game? It's called the Bad Manners, the Bad manners Game. Is we, we wanted to teach them um, what, what good manners were. And, and Yvonne never liked this game. But our children loved this game. And here's the game, right? You're, you're sitting around the table, and um, we, we would select someone around the table, and then it would be their turn. He or she then would do something that's not appropriate to do at, at the dinner table. And then those around the table would identify what exactly was wrong with their behavior. And, and then it would go to the next person who have an opportunity to uh, play the game. And uh, just kind of, it would, it would, it would go around, and you know what? The kids so wanted to play every time that, like, it, it never, st- it always went fully around. Like everyone always wanted their own turn. And during this time, really, a- anything goes. So it started calm. Um, maybe someone like slurping their milk, or you know, chewing with their mouth open. Or maybe eating with their fingers or putting their elbows on the table. But as the game progresses, um, you want to always like up what was before. And so we had people standing on chairs and french fries up their nose and, and um, fingers up the nose and then stirring their milk together, faces and mashed potatoes or throwing some carrots at their sister. I mean, it just, you can only use your imagination what we did. And I could trust you can see right now why Yvonne never liked the game. <laughs> But uh, our children loved it and um, always begged there'd be another round. And sometimes we even did this when visitors were at our house. I'm just curious. Have any of you visited our house when we've done the Bad Manners game? Yeah, okay, the Weebies have. Were you there, Thatcher? Right, The Browns have. Was it pretty fun? You like the game? No. (laughs) I know, Thatcher, you love the game, right? (laughs) It was a very fun game. Families, you can... um, can, um, Take that into your home if you want. Maybe husbands talk with your wives first. But it was very effective, right? Our, our, our children, it's interesting, through the process, just naturally, they came to know what was bad manners and what was good manners. They knew how to do bad manners. They knew what was appropriate at the dinner table. They knew what wasn't appropriate. Well, th- this morning we're going to look at something that's always appropriate. And what's always appropriate is the praise of God title of my message this morning is this, the praise is fitting. That is, praise is an appropriate thing to do. It's the the proper thing to do, right? When we think about manners on a human level, we think about how they're appropriate because really they're an expression of love towards other people. I mean, you you love other people when you say please and thank you. That's an expression of your love. You you love other people when you, you don't reach over their plates and knock them with your elbows as you go to try to get the ketchup. You, you love people. That's a good manners in that way. You, you love people when you wipe the food off of your face, you know, so you eat something and, and maybe you wipe it off your napkin so that people don't have to be looking at your food on your face. It's an expression of love. But good manners are also appropriate when you find yourself in the presence of one with authority. It's like, say, a judge or a police officer. 
police officer stops you in the car, you're standing before a judge for some reason, it should be, sir, yes, sir, it should be, thank you, or it should be, yes, ma'am, it should be, thank you, it should be, please, you do that with the utmost respect for them at the moment because of their authority. And so likewise, just think about with God, it's, it's the same. Praise is fitting towards God because of our love towards Him. And, and, and when we realize how kind God has been to us, especially in Jesus, that Jesus is our only hope in life and death. His, he died for us and for our sins to make us right before Him. That is love and praise is fitting to our, our God who died for us. Yet praise is also fitting when you see the mighty power of God. When you're in awe of the power of God, also praise is fitting. Whether God is great, whether you look at His greatness, or whether you look at His goodness, praise is fitting in every way. Well, we're going to see this in our psalm this morning, Psalm 147. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 147. We've been looking, we began last week, looking at the last five psalms of the Psalter, which are, are called the Alleluia Psalms. Uh, these are the psalms that, that all begin and end with the word Alleluia. And we translate that in the English with praise the Lord. And, and all you need to do is just kind of look there, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. They all start with praise the Lord. They all end with praise the Lord. It's all Alleluia. Alleluia. And, and really, my heart for us looking at these psalms and, and working through these psalms is we gain this fresh perspective on worship through these psalms. Right? That, that we'd be better at, at praising the Lord. That, that we would desire to praise the Lord more than ever before. That, that we as a church, as we sing, would sing more loudly. As we're at home, would, would, would more devotionally give our praise and admonition as we work through these Alleluia psalms. Well, this morning we are looking at Psalm 147. I want to read the psalm. As I do, notice the end and the beginning. Right? Speak about praise the Lord. And continually, this psalm particularly, how many times also it does call us to praise the Lord. Psalm 147 says this. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines a number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is there pleasure his, his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord, O Zion. For He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command at the earth, and his word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow, and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. 
psalm breaks down nicely into three sections. Each section really begins with a call of, of praise the Lord, right? You look there in verse 1, it says, praise the Lord. It's good to sing praises to our God. It's pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. You look down there in verse 7, here's another admonition of praise. Maybe it's a little different, doesn't say those exact words, but it's still the idea. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to our God on the lyre. Uh, look at verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. And these three verses form the beginning of each section of the psalm. Each section of the psalm is really calling us to praise the Lord. And then following each of these sections, we have reasons to praise the Lord. And basically our reasons is because God. Because God is. It's so appropriate for us to read from Isaiah 40 this morning. Behold your God. That's what Isaiah 47 does. It says, praise the Lord. Let me behold your God, and that will give you reason then to praise the Lord in a, in a natural and appropriate ways of who God is, what He does, how He deals with us. He's worthy of our praise. Praise is fitting. Now, I get that phrase from my sermon title from verse 1. If you look, verse 1, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and here it is, a song of praise is fitting. That is, it's, it's proper, suitable, appropriate. It's the right thing to do. Literally, the, the Hebrew here means it's beautiful or delightful. Praise is, is delightful. It's, it's beautiful. That's why the old King James translates this, praise is comely. I'm not sure you, you know what comely means. What's comely mean? I had to look it up. What does it mean? Beautiful, like attractive, like here, come, come look. It, it's something that invites you to come and to see. It's what praise is. And, and that's what praise is. It's a lovely thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's an appropriate thing. It is a fitting theme. In, in fact, verse 1, look at how, how fitting it is. It says it, it's good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant. It's good. It's pleasant. It's, it's wholesome. It's nice. It's satisfying. It's fitting. And the rest of the psalm is really committed to bringing us in and drawing us in to the praise of God by showing us His power, His provision, His goodness, and His grace. In fact, almost every line of this psalm tells us something about God and what He does. It's either focuses upon His goodness or His greatness. It either focuses on His power or on His kindness to us. And the idea of the psalm is really simple, right? The psalmist puts forth who God is, and we're drawn by His beauty to come and worship Him and to sing praises to Him. You know, it's like a piece of art that people are just drawn to and attracted to, to come and watch. This, of course, is called the Mona Lisa, right? The um, half-portrait painted by Italian artist who... Leonardo da Vinci, right? You guys know well. Where is this held? Where does it stay? In the Louvre? How long has it been in the Louvre? Stumper question there. 400 years. That's good guess. Since 1797, it has been in the Louvre. So that's like 200 years. You're, right. You're on the right scale there, Heidi, for sure. It's the most valuable painting in the world. How much would you buy it for? Hey, we got a painting going for me. <laughs> if they sold it at uh, Herod's auction, what would you sell it for? We're, we're talking a billion, probably. It's kind of the, the, the value on this. Not that they're ever going to sell it, but it is so valuable that there it is in the Louvre behind bulletproof glass. 
lest anyone want to shoot a hole in this thing or spit on it or someone fall over it or, or whatever. The Mona Lisa is also the most visited painting in the world. Approximately 10 million people come to see this painting. And why do they come? They come to see this work of art. They want to see the wonders of the painting. They, they want to see her teasing smile for themselves. They try to figure it out. They want to set their eyes upon this most valuable painting in the world. And when it comes to the worship of God, Psalm 147, exactly the same. Here's God, right? Here's this Mona Lisa. Come and people want to see the Mona Lisa, right? Here is God. Come and worship Him. You see the wonders of His grace, the greatness of His power. It's fitting for us to praise the Lord. Well, let's look here at the first things that the psalmist tells us about the Lord. First of all, he says he's merciful and mighty. And there you see, right? He's goodness, he's merciful, he's mighty. There is his greatness. In verses 2 through 6, we see this, this combination of, yes, he's mighty, but he's also merciful. Unlike the rich and powerful of the world today, who often combine their might with meanness. Have you ever noticed that? Most powerful, richest people in the world tend to be the most meanest and ugly people in the world, demanding their ways. Not so with God. God is mighty, but He's also merciful. We see His mercy in verses 2 and 3. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Now, this takes us back to Israel, to, to God's people, right? because it's talking about Jerusalem. This is talking about the, the place, that city in the, in the Middle East. The Lord chose to make a mighty people from Abraham. And, and he set his love upon Abraham, not because he was mighty, but because he chose him. You can read about that in Genesis 12. And he promised that he would have this, this, uh, this nation, this numerous as stars of the sky. He can't even count them, like the sands of the seashore. God says, I'm going I'm to bless you, make you numerous. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you Jerusalem. I'm going to give you this city that God built then for his people. And in that city, the Lord gathered his people. And, and particularly here, verse 2, when it speaks about the Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the outcasts of Israel. It's led many people to, to think that these psalms, these uh, hallelujah psalms, were actually written during the time of the return from the Babylonian exile. Because there's some, several phrases here, even that we'll see in our psalm today, that just describe perfectly what it would have been like for Israel to have come back from exile in Babylon to come back into their home city of Jerusalem. Well, so we're talking about the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? When, when the people were scattered, they're considered castaways. But God, God brought them back into Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now, whether actually these psalms were written at that time, they certainly would have been used by that time, resonated with those people um, in coming back to realize that God cares for those who are cast away and, and left to be oppressed. He cares for them so much that he brings them back in the land, restores them into their city for them. And we see here in verse 3 that he not only just brings them back and just says, okay, there you are. He doesn't dump them there, but he, he cares for them. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. This is what God does in his mercy. He heals those with broken hearts. He cares for those who are wounded. And here we're talking spiritually primarily. Think about Jesus. When he walked on the earth, he didn't gravitate to the strong. He gravitated to the weak. He cared for the weak. He ate with the tax collectors and the sinners, those who were outcasts from society. And he gathered the outcasts to himself. 
He went and ate with the tax collectors and sinners, and the religiously righteous Pharisees expressed their disapproval. Oh, we would never do that! Such is the heart of Jesus, though. Jesus said to these people who were scolding him, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. It's the character of God. He goes towards those who need mercy. When hearts are broken and wounded in their sin, the hope of the gospel for us here this morning is that, that we come to God not because we're strong, not because we had all figured out, but in fact because we are weak. We come to God not because our hearts are full, but because our hearts actually are broken and crushed. And we need healing in Him. And God in His great mercy through the cross of Christ heals us. Heals our wounds. Are you brokenhearted today? Has someone disappointed you? Has your spouse forsaken you? Have your children gone astray? Have you lost loved ones to death? Are you facing financial hardship? Is your heart broken? Well, come to the Lord, the merciful one. Come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. God is mercy. He'll receive you. But we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper the end of my message this morning. But God is also mighty. We see this in verses 4 and 5. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. There's really no better illustration for this than... What's this, David? He's tired of me talking about the James Webb Telescope is what that is. (laughs) That's the, the James Webb Telescope... 30 years of development, costing more than $10 billion, launched on Christmas Day. In fact, I'm not sure you remember. I, I talked about how it launched that day and how excited I was. And, and everything has gone really according to plan. It took a month to enter the orbit, the second Lagrange point, a million miles from Earth, always away from the sun. To, that big shield there shields it from its heat. It took more than five months to cool down the instruments and calibrate them. It's for their, taking their pictures. And if, uh, it was like a few weeks ago, maybe 10 days ago, NASA published the first images from the telescope. How many of you have seen these? Good, good, good. Uh, here's my favorite so far. It's an image known as Webb's first deep field. Um, it's an image of a, a galaxy cluster, SMACS 0723 to be precise. It's kind of NASA tries to name this galaxy cluster. To give you a perspective of this picture, I, I want you to take an index card poke a pinhole through it, maybe the size of a, a, grand, a, a, a grain of sand, hold that index card at arm's length and look through the hole, and that's what you'll see. We look up at the stars, and we see a few stars here and there. And if you go to really dark places, right, you'll see more, but we won't see anything like this with the, the naked eye. You can see some stars in the image. Those are the, the ones with the lens flares on them. But everything else, galaxies, Everything else in that picture are galaxies. Everything in that picture, hundreds of billions of stars. Size of a a pinhole held at arm's length. Scientists are trying to number the stars. They can't number all the stars. They can't number the stars in this picture. Like, they can only guess how many stars are in each of those galaxies. I say hundreds of millions, billions maybe, Maybe this one's big, it's got 10 billion. Maybe this one's fairly small. It's only got 100 million stars in that galaxy. We, we don't know. But you can't even begin to, to number them. 
God determined the number of stars in the location of the universe. He's given them all names, is what verse 4 says. And I, I read in Isaiah 40 today the, the same thing about how He, he numbers, he, he names them all. And then it says in Isaiah 40, He says that not one of them is missing. Verse 26. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. The greatness of His might, He's strong in power, not one is missing. There's not a star that's out of place. My goodness, I lose my phone. <laughs> I mean, I, I lose things at home all the time, but God has never lost a star in the vastness of the universe. And um, the amazing thing about James Webb Telescope is that we're seeing stars and galaxies that we never saw before. Um, you know, here's, here's an image here. The, the left is the Hubble telescope and the right is the James Webb. Maybe you've seen that. Like, this is our best telescope, and, and scientists were like, ooing and aahing at the one on the left with Hubble. And now we're beginning to see things that we didn't even know. Like, like we know they're there, but we don't know what's there. And if and when we have a more powerful telescope, which NASA's working on right now, We'll just take that next one and, you know, in another generation, let's say, look at that James Webb. Look at how they thought that was hot stuff back then. But look at it now. In fact, that's what it is, right? It's verse 5. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. That's our God. He's great. He's Praise is fitting of this God, right? I think so. This God is so mighty, He's also merciful. He goes back to the theme of mercy in verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Yes, God is powerful, but He's not only concerned with Himself. He looks to the humble. He looks to the brokenhearted. And those are the ones that He will lift up. Isaiah 66, verse 1 says, This is the one to whom I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the one that has God's eye. And the humble here is going to be lifted up. Psalm 113, another Alleluia psalm that begins and ends with, with Alleluia, says he, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So I, I believe Mary quoted in her Magnificat in Luke chapter 2. Just She was humble and God lifted her up, exalted her. But through her, her womb, he would enter the world. But those who rebel, continue to exalt themselves, continue to snub their nose at, at God, God will take them like a grasshopper and squeeze them to the ground. He'll cast them out because the Lord lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. The wicked have shaken their fist at him and he'll subdue them in the dirt. Right? Because they have resisted what is fitting and what is fitting is the praise of God. And when people resist the praise of God, they, they fail to honor Him with their lips, He will destroy them. Revelation 16, the bold judgments poured out right there. God's glory is seen. They continue to rebel against the Lord, and God destroys the people. Well, in verse 7, we see another pray, call to praise the Lord as we kind of move on through this psalm. In these verses, we see the Lord is caring and compassionate. The psalmist begins by calling us to praise the Lord here in this section. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. And here, praise of God is with music. Now, up to this point, you may be thinking all along, when I say praise the Lord, you may be thinking music. 
because that's naturally what we often think. We often think about worship band, right? We often think about worship or praising the Lord is, is Sunday morning. Synonymous, right? Praising the Lord. Okay, go to church and sing, right? Indeed, singing, make melody to God is, is a way that we praise the Lord, but it's far from the only way. In fact, even it's interesting that maybe it's the minority way. It is a good way. It's a good way for us collectively to praise the Lord. It is the way for the congregation to praise the Lord as we all sing the same things all at the same time. But there are many times in the, the Scriptures where it just says praise the Lord and music is nowhere in sight. So like, like for instance, Psalm 146, we looked at last week. So the, the thrust of whole praising the Lord, it said nothing about music. Uh, Psalm 148 is, is filled with like a dozen commands to praise the Lord. We'll look at this next week. Look, it says, praise the Lord, Psalm 148, verse 1. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all the angels. Praise Him all the hosts. Praise Him sun, moon, stars. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. And yet, never does it speak about music in Psalm 148. So praising the Lord doesn't always include music. There, there are many ways to praise the Lord. Simply saying praise the Lord helps. That's a good way to praise the Lord. Something comes along, you just praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Right? You're saved from some car accident, right? Praise the Lord. That's a good way to praise the Lord. You receive some good news about a child's report card, you say praise the Lord. Something good happens, someone compliments you, yeah, praise the Lord. You, you can praise the Lord easily saying that. You can pray silently and praise the Lord, just even all alone. God knows your thoughts. He understands your thoughts from afar. The psalmist says, you just praise the Lord, wherever you are. Bathroom, in the shower, driving your car, alone, walking. You can praise the Lord. You can praise the Lord with your body. Finger the Lord like it's Him. It's him. Now, if everyone saying that is not really praising, I mean, it's just not, right? And everyone saying praising the Lord just oh, it could be vain words. But those are different ways you can do it. But having said that, singing is a big way we can praise the Lord. In fact, we're going to see singing in Psalm 149. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Um, especially Psalm 150. It's going to be the same thing. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise Him with mighty heavens. Praise Him with mighty deeds. And praise Him with a trumpet sound, verse 3. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with string and pipe. Like music and instruments are just right in there every, every bit. And, and so right, we, we can do that particularly. And so singing isn't the only way to give praise to God, but it is one way. It's what we're called to in this verse, in verse 7. Simple command, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. So I just, do you do this? On Sunday morning, are you singing? I know a lot of you are singing. Okay. Now, one thing that's interesting for me is that I sit in front and I look forward and I'm not around saying, is everyone singing here? So I don't know. Ryan maybe has an idea of people who don't sing. I know enough about church and I know enough about people and even I know particularly enough about men that oftentimes I've seen many men just not sing. And if that's you, guys... Take some singing lessons or something. Like, like get ready and sing. This is a, a clear command of Scripture. Calls us to sing. That's an expression from our heart. It's a way for you to join in the chorus of the church and to sing. If you don't know how to sing very well, you can sing softly. That works too. Yes, I'm looking at him. Yes, I know. You can sing softly. My brother-in-law 
you sing softly, okay? But for those of you who can sing carry tune, they sing loud. Like, one of the things I love about this church is the acoustics in this building are wonderful. Like, I, I remember before we bought this building, being here in this place, and we went to hear a preacher preach, and uh, he said, you know, the acoustics here are so wonderful. Can we just sing a hymn? He just opened to a hymn and just sang in this place because the acoustics, he thought, were so well. To sing would encourage you. I mean, there's, there's a command. And if nothing else, right, verse 1 says it's good to sing praises to our God. So do a good thing and sing praises to our God, which is a, which is a good thing. Well, you're commanded in verse 7 to praise the Lord. You're commended in verse 1 to praise the Lord. And maybe, perhaps, you might pick up uh, a musical instrument. Make melody to our God on the lyre. We'll talk more about musical instruments when we get to Psalm 150. But maybe, <clears throat> if not, a pulpit makes a good musical instrument, right? Percussion, maybe, right? You sing along. I don't know. Something. But we see more reasons than to praise the Lord in verses 8 through 10. We see God caring for His creation. He covers the heavens with the clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. These verses talk about how God gives rain upon the earth. And when He gives rain, the grass grows. And when the grass grows, the animals eat. And when the animals eat, they flourish and go. And it just shows God shows His care for His creatures. From the beasts of verse 9 to the ravens, the young ravens that cry in the nests in verse 9 as well. He provides. He cares for His creatures. Ever since the creation of the world, he's done this. He's provided rains from heaven, which give food to the earth. It's a testimony of the goodness of God. We've been preaching our way through Acts. and Remember when we were in Acts chapter 14, and Paul went to Lystra, and the people started worshiping because they thought that he and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes come down from heaven. And, and he said, no, stop doing these things. These are dead idols. Turn from these dead idols to a living God. And then he described this living God. He said, this living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that contains them. And then he says, in generations, past generations, he said, he allowed the nations to go their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. He giving rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Rain and fruitful seasons are a sign of God's care for his creation. He says to you in Lystra, listen, right, you may have spurned God, but God was still good to you to give you rains. So you get a fruit, and so you could eat, and you get your festal seasons. It's interesting that we're living in a time now when some of the clouds are drying up, particularly on our western states. Large reservoirs, probably heard of these. Lake Mead and Lake Powell are, are going down. I don't, I don't know what the solution to that is. Some people say it's caused by humans, too many carbon emissions. Others would argue that's just a warming trend that will, will change, but not caused by human. They can go on and on. I'm not trying to argue that. But what I'm saying is this psalm says that there's an intimate cause between rain and lack of rain and the power of the Lord. This, this psalm says that God controls the weather, right? You know the difference between the, the weatherman and God, right? The weatherman just predicts the weather, but God causes the weather. It says, God says, is there going to be rain today? He says, rain. Is it going to be dry and sunny today? It's just dry and sunny. He causes the rain. What, Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth and the sea and all the deeps, 
He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. He it is who makes the mount lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He's the one that brings it. God can shut the heavens up for years. Think about Elijah. At the command of Elijah, the heavens were stopped. No rain. At the command of Elijah, they came again because obviously it was the power of God. Three and a half years, then it did come and, and give rain when Elijah gave the word. <clears throat> And there are times in the Bible when lack of rain is a sign of judgment that God brings upon his people. And Solomon, when he dedicated the, papal, the, the temple, he prayed 1 Kings 8, he said, verse 35, when the heavens is shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, no rain because of sin, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from the sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people's inheritance. In other words, he's saying this. This is particularly to Israel. But he said, Israel in their disobedience, God will stop the rain to get their attention. It's then when they humble themselves and they turn to the Lord. Solomon's just playing, when they do that, O Lord, give them rain and provide it. And it may just be in our nation our sinful nature is going astray from the Lord. It, it may well be that the, the dryness out west is a judgment hand of God upon our country. It may well be that. Now, I don't know. It could be. But at any rate, just as the farmers pray for the rain, those out west are praying for rain, and we should be praying for rain, turning from our wicked ways and seeking the Lord. Well, God cares. He, he gives rain, is what verse seven, 8 and 9 says. But not only is he caring, he's also compassionate. Verse 10. Again, it's just showing who God is that we might just fittingly worship him. Uh, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. And, and here again is the gospel loud and clear. See, God doesn't, doesn't say, you better shape up and you better get strong so you can come towards me. We don't need to be strong to come into his presence. God is not impressed by the strength of a horse or by the legs of a man. That NBA player can jump really high. God doesn't say, wow, you jump really high. He doesn't say that. He doesn't expect our strength. In fact, God doesn't do this. God doesn't look upon the powerful and bring the powerful to his team. You, you know, when, whenever you, you play an athletic contest and you, you, have, you pick up two captains, who do the captains pick? They pick the powerful and the strong to come and be on their team. You know, when God is a captain, he says, okay, who's the worst player out here? Who's the worst one? Right? Let's pick that one, right? You're the worst one. I'd need some names, but I'm not going to embarrass you all, right? Let's pick that one, right? That's the worst one. We're going to take him to my team. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God shows what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what's low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. See, that, that's how God works. God chooses the nothings and the nobodies and the weak and the feeble. Why? Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's just how God is. God doesn't want to take glory away from himself. He says, I have my glory, and I will not give it to anybody else. And so when he takes the weak 
then they give God the glory. But if he takes the strong, people might boast of their own strength. That's why he takes the weak. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, <clears throat> because of him, you were in Christ Jesus. It's because of God that you're in Christ Jesus. He's the one that chose, elected, determined, brought you in, all for his praise. There's nothing that we can do. We say, well, I was really smart to figure out the gospel. <laughs> no. God was really gracious to open your mind and heart to understand the gospel. <clears throat> because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just that we believe and trust in Christ. There is a wisdom that we have, a, a godly wisdom. This redemption being brought back and sanctification. Redemption, and so that it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, salvation comes not to the strong with the weak. Salvation comes to those who just cry out to the Lord and, and, and boast in Him and they praise Him. Not their own strength. Listen, your only hope in this life and death is Christ alone. Christ alone, as we sang today. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Just confessing Christ and just saying, God, I'm weak. I, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply, I'm coming to the cross. That's what I cling. I'm weak. I'm needy. I'm broken. And the mercy and compassion and the grace of God comes again in verse 11. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. See, those who fear him, God, God looks down with a happy smile upon those who fear the Lord. God, God takes pleasure towards those who hope in his steadfast love, not placing their hope in themselves. And, and God is pleased to come to the aid of those who say, God, help me. We, we saw this last week in Psalm 146, right? Verse 7, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. Right? We are blessed when we look to God for our help. Because God is pleased. God likes taking people from the dirt to bring them up. God is pleased. He likes it when people come to an end of themselves. And when they just throw themselves on the compassion of God. On the loving kindness of God. His steadfast love. Right? God takes pleasure, as it says in verse 11. Those who hope in His steadfast love. What's His steadfast love? That's His loyal love. That's His chesed love. That's his love that just endures and is faithful, that will be gracious, will continue to love even through our trials in life. So is that you this morning? Are you, are you taking pleasure in trusting God? Is God taking pleasure in you, maybe? Is God, when God looks down upon us, is he taking pleasure in you? It's really easy. Fear the Lord and hope for his steadfast love, not to boast yourself up and say, look at me. Or are you trying to be strong in the Lord as your grounds for hope? Wow, well, look at all the zeal. Look at all the things I'm doing for God. I'm a pastor. Look at I'm committed totally to the Lord. <laughs> That's not how it is. God, God looks to those who hope for Him, trust in Him, not trying to be good enough for God. You might as well jump to those far distant galaxies and try to be justified by your goodness before the Lord. Church family, hope in the Lord. He cares for you and He's compassionate. Well, finally, our last point, verse 12. And we'll get through this point quickly, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper here. Praise is fitting because God is peaceful and powerful. Again, the, the call to praise comes in verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, and praise your God, O Zion. 
Uh, again, this takes us back to Israel. This is an Israel psalm. This is, this is Jerusalem. This is the city. Zion is the, the city, the mount on which Jerusalem was. Right? He's calling these people, the Jews, to praise the Lord. But it totally applies to us as well. But we see some particular application here as well. Praise Jerusalem because in your situation in a city, perhaps brought back from exile, in danger, city without walls, Nehemiah helped build the walls, right? Steady and, and secure it. Says he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace. There it is. He's peaceful and powerful. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with its finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes the wind blow and the waters flow and he declares the word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Again, the point of the psalm, right? It's fitting for Jerusalem to praise the Lord. It's fitting for Zion to praise the Lord because his power brings peace. That's what he tells us in verse 13. He strengthens the bars of your gates. So you think about Israel in those days long before guns and tanks and jets and bombs. The city was strengthened by their walls. And you build the walls up on a hill. So you've got to go up the hill first, then you've got to try to go over the wall. And then you have to build gates because you've got to go in and out of that city. And the gates were the most vulnerable part of the wall. But God strengthens even the bars, the gates. He protects you. He brings peace into the borders of the city. That's what even verse 14 says making peace in your borders. There's I say where God is peaceful. When I say God is peaceful, like He, he brings peace. Right? He, he's the one that establishes peace. That's what I mean by peaceful. Not that He's peaceful in Himself, but He brings it. I could say He's a peacemaker, but that didn't quite work with my, my points here this, this morning. But not only does the Lord bring peace from the enemies who try to attack, He, he also brings peace in the hearts of the people. Look, look at verse 13. He says, He blesses your children within you. The idea here, children within the walls. Safe and sound. Bellies filled. As verse 14 says, He fills you with the finest of wheat. That's how God brings peace. Peace in the city and, and bringing you food again. This, this whole food theme is coming up from my last point. right? Bringing the rain, bringing the beast, bringing the food, bringing the wheat. You got it. He cares for His people by providing for them their every need. Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's fitting to praise this God who brings peace. And He does it because of His power. Think about Teddy Roosevelt, right? He says, uh, speak softly and carry a, a big stick. See, that's, that's a way to bring peace, is to be peaceful and calm, knowing you've got a big stick behind you. And that's what God does. He brings peace because he's got a big stick in his hand. And, and again, in verse 15 and following, we see just the, the power of, of the Word of God. He sends out His command to the earth. His Word runs swiftly. So here's an instance of His Word going out to His creation. Because we're going to be talking here about the snowpacks, which melt into rivers and provide food for people. That's what 16, 17, 18 talking about, right? Verse 17, hurling down crystals like ice and sending His Word and melting them. So if you know anything about Israel is uh, J- Jerusalem is there in the Middle East, and then up north is this Mount Hermon. And they get their water from Mount Hermon, uh, a little bit similar-wise, where the, uh, the, the people in Arizona get their water 
right, from the Rockies. It snows there, and then it comes down the Snake River. They get their, their water. So likewise, it's Mount Hermon, and it comes down you know, into the Jordan River. It comes to the Sea of Galilee, and then comes down and provides Israel with that. And so this is making snow in Mount Hermon, and then it comes down in the water. But it's the power of God that he can just command the snow, and it snows, the crystals, and they go, and they sit there on top of the, the mountain. And then he says, melt, and they melt, and then they come down, and they provide for people. That's how God provides. That's his, his power. His word goes out and is obeyed by the, the creation of the world. But then we see also his word in verse 19, a little bit different. He says, he declares his word to Jacob. This is not so much the word that goes out to creation as much as this is the, the scriptures. This is the law. This is the Old Testament. This is the prophets. And he has sent that to Jacob. That is, right, to, to tell them of statutes and rules. You know, have you ever realized what it would be like if we didn't have a Bible? Lots of people in this world don't have a Bible. And they know all about God because he shouts in his creation. He says he's there. He says he exists. He provides for them at the word of his command. But without the word of God, they, didn't, they don't know about Jesus. That's why, why people go out to all the nations, to tell people about Jesus. And this is, this is sort of that, right? He's telling his statutes and his rules. Not only is he a powerful God, but the, the kind of ways that he's given us to follow in. The ways we've sinned, the way we need a Savior, his, his gracious kindness to that. And verse 20 says this, He's not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. And there's the blessing the peace that he gives to the people of Israel, that, that his revelation came to them. Now at the cross of Christ, now it, it's, it's expanded, right? And we are privileged enough to have Bibles. We have too many Bibles in our homes. Probably if your home is like, like my home, you have way too many Bibles. But that is a blessing to us that the, the word that used to be just with Israel now is expanded to all the nations come in through Christ. It's a pen, day of Pentecost. It's for all the nations now to come and believe. And all we can do is do what this psalm says at the end. Is praise the Lord. Praise the Lord we have His Word. Praise the Lord that He gives us peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I began this morning by telling you about our, our bad manners game. Ways which are inappropriate to do at the dinner table because there are things appropriate to do at the dinner table. Well, we're going to have a dinner here. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, it's not a big dinner. It's... Just a tiny little scrap of, of uh, bread and, and a cup, obviously, that, that represents the body and blood of, of Jesus. But, but there are appropriate ways to eat at this table as well. Right? First of all, it's a table of remembrance. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance of the gospel. So we ought to remember the gospel at this time, which is, which is clear right here, right through Psalm 147. Right, Just consider the gospel in Psalm 147. That the Lord, verse 2, gathers the outcasts of Israel. That he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That God is the one who heals the brokenhearted. We also see it in uh, verse 10 and 11. His delight's not in the strength of the horse, nor is pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Those who hope in His steadfast love. And as we remember Christ, we remember that we're, we're hoping in His steadfast love. We're, we're hoping in His death for us. We're hoping, verse 6, that the Lord lifts up the humble, that we would be humble as we celebrate the supper together. The gospel also comes in 19 and 20 that He gives us His Word. That His Word comes to us. 
And His Word, of course, is the, the Word of God. And for us, the message of the Gospel, that Christ Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross in our place. That, that God might not punish us because He already punished Jesus. And by faith, we believe in Christ and are made righteous before Him. And that's the Lord's Supper is a, is a fitting way to, to praise the Lord, is to remember, first of all, but to check our hearts. Even in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, to examine your hearts, right? lest you eat of the bread or drink of the cup in an unworthy manner, right? bad manners before the Lord. That just means to, to say, and I encourage you, to say, are you really trusting in the Lord? Is there, there sin that's unconfessed, that you're not walking with Him? These things don't ring true to you. Are, are you the proud you say, no, I'm going to do things my way. Are you trusting in your own righteousness? Well, if that's the case, then don't eat of this supper because this supper is for those who have trusted in Jesus and said, Christ, you're my all. You're my everything. I just, I, I, I tr- I'm nothing. I'm trusting you. So by eating the bread and drinking the cup, you're proclaiming my trust is completely in the Lord. Let's bow our heads and just prepare our hearts. Father, I would pray that as we celebrate this supper that we might do so with good manners, what is appropriate. And what is appropriate is to remember you on that last day when you took the bread and took the cup and you said, do this in remembrance of me. We need to do this remembering you and more than remembering you, but really trusting you, trusting you to walk in, in your ways, trusting your forgiveness of sins, trusting that you're the one that gives us strength day by day and moment by moment to live as we ought to live. So I just encourage you now even to examine your heart. If there's sin, just confess it now to the Lord. Make it right however you can. But know that this is the gospel. This is Jesus Christ dying for us. And that's what we remember in a way that we praise the Lord in singing. And we can also praise the Lord in eating and drinking the cup as we profess our, our trust in Jesus. So Father, be with us and honor us. Encourage us even now at this moment as we clearly place our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.